Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Revelation chapter 6 through 14. This is a fascinating set of scriptures because for those of you who are familiar with, with epic movies and epic books, they often, not always, come in trilogies. And that middle part of a saga is usually this heavy, difficult, oh no, what are we going to do? Because the, the enemy that we're, we've been fighting against is now mounting up and the outlook looks terrible. It's very grim. We have little hope that we're going to be able to survive and accomplish. Well, at first glance, if you look at our three weeks of lessons in Revelation, the first one is very, very beautiful, setting the stage. The last one is the triumph where God prevails. This middle one is filled with a whole bunch of of struggles and kind of difficult chaos being poured out on the earth. And there are times in here where it looks pretty bleak. But again, that's the whole point of the book being a revelation, uh, an apocalypse to show or uncover, unveil, reveal, make clear the future so that we don't stay in this second uh, episode of the trilogy and lose hope and give up. We, we endure to the end. And in our lives, are there ever moments where it feels like everything's going wrong, everything's tension? It's not where we're usually typically super happy. We don't typically pray for those moments. We usually pray to be liberated from those moments. And when we are, how glorious it is versus if life was just steady state and we had God's presence, we're like, oh, that's how it always is. But when we are suffering and struggling, when there is a clear need for the author and finisher to tie up all the loose ends of the chaos, it is absolutely glorious and so compelling when the story gets to its conclusion and we see how God has done his work. And so we're just in the middle of the story here and we can just be quite at peace knowing that everything will turn out that God will win. So as we jump in, remember that the significance of the number seven to this book is a complete, perfect, lacking nothing. It's a full set. You have three sets of these sevens is how John is going to tell this middle part of the story, which will actually lead in also to the beginning part of next week's scriptures. You have first the seven seals, the first thing that comes to us in this this middle part about the unfolding of this revelation or this panoptic vision, where he sees each of the seven seals representing roughly a thousand-year period. Keep in mind, these are probably not to be interpreted literally as exactly a thousand years down to the day. They're just, one thousand is a fascinating number. Why? because it's using another one of those significant symbolic numbers to the Hebrews, the number 10, which represents a totality. Remember, last week we talked about this. You have 10 fingers. You have 10 toes. 10 is a very round number. It's this total, complete number. And if you multiply 10 times 10 times 10, it's a superlative of totality. It's, it's, a, it's an absolute beautiful, complete number, this thousand. So, symbolically, you have seven seals, each representing a totality of a totality of a totality of of events that need to take place within that time frame. So, that's where we're starting. It's like concluding a chapter. Can you imagine if you were reading a book and you finish a chapter and moved on to the next chapter, But then suddenly the first chapter intruded on the second chapter. You'd be completely confused about what's going on. So again, it's each seal is like a different chapter of God's work with humanity on earth. And he will complete each of the seven chapters. And we can totally trust he knows exactly where the story is going and how it is concluded. And nothing will be commingled inappropriately. So as you get through the seven seals, 
watching time march forward. Then you get to the seventh seal, and in the seventh seal, you now get introduced to the next set of seven, which are the trumpets. Remember last week we talked about noise in the ancient world typically signaled that God is arriving to do his work. Now, typically we want to see the positive aspect of God's work, but sometimes God has to act in certain forms of justice that to us might seem a little scary. But the trumpets are like the mentioning of seven trumpets is that God is fully arriving to cleanse the earth and prepare it for his full return. And so, as you get through, we'll cover the seven trumpets, and when you get to the seventh trumpet, then it introduces the next set of seven, which are the seven vials, or the seven uh, containers with seven angels that are going to pour out what is in their vials onto the earth. This is not a literal uh, interpretation, it's very symbolic of John trying to describe how an angel has this capacity to create certain uh, consequences, as Taylor's talking, some of these justice is being served in the form of a symbolic vial being poured out. So, this will begin the set of verses or the set of chapters that are covered in next week's lesson. So, for today, we begin in chapter 6 with this moment when the Lamb has taken the book out of the hands of God and now begins to open those seals one by one. What an amazing thing, by the way, to picture the, the prophetic vision of how this is being portrayed of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah, before the world was, was created, as he breaks open the first seal and it says, and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, and one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Again, thunder, trumpets, these loud noises to get your attention, come and see. Don't you love that that's the same phrase that the Savior used when he was first baptized and had some disciples begin following him and asking him where he lived, that was his response, come and see, which is kind of the whole focus of our Come Follow Me curriculum right. is an invitation for all of us. Wherever we may live, whatever our life situation be, whatever our history in the church is, it's to come and see. And what is it that we're looking for? What is it that our focus is on? It's on him. It's on Christ. It's the Lamb. Everything revolves around him. And if we're not teaching about him, then we're probably missing the mark. We're, we're probably missing something in the, in the symbolism or in the story. So, verse 2, you get the first of what we call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They're all here on this, on, in these first eight verses of chapter 6. And and it's probably worthwhile to say, God is sharing with John some symbols to help him understand that God has a plan. Remember, we talked about four. There's this idea of four corners of the earth. Now, we all know the earth is a globe, and there's not technically four corners on a globe. But if you take, you know, a, a crosswise of XY axis, you basically can go north, south, east, and west. And the horses, in some ways, are also symbolized as they go throughout the whole world. Exactly. So, this first horse that we're introduced to, or horseman, he's riding on a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So, that first thousand-year period seems to be focused on a whole bunch of, of conquering, which then leads you to the second horse, which is red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and they that should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So, we get peace removed during that second thousand-year period. And then the third, in verse 5, is riding on a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice 
in the midst of the, of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Seems to be a, a period of, of intense famine. Now, you will notice that there, there are a lot of examples that you could go through in the Old Testament in that first thousand year period with, with Adam, with Seth, with Abel, um, in that first thousand year period. In the second thousand year period, you've got Enoch. You would have the, the events with Noah and the Tower of Babel in the second thousand year period. In the third, with this black horse and periods of famine, think about how many famines there were in the Old Testament stories beginning with Abraham, with Joseph, Moses, Joseph in, Egypt. Joseph in Egypt, all of that famine, all of that a need for a measuring uh, device and things are very expensive to buy because there's famine in the land. And then you get to the fourth, the which would be uh, the second half of the Old Testament. I looked and beheld a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him, and power is given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. So you, you get those four horsemen, and people often try to bring those four horsemen of the apocalypse back to life in our day. And the reality is, is Joseph Smith found out in his question and answer period with the Lord in section 77 of the Doctrine and Covenants that you don't have to wonder about these because there's a pretty clear description of where they fit, and we're studying history right now. Hence, pan-optic, a view of everything. So right now, we happen to be looking into the past, not to just satisfy curiosity, but to learn from the past, to recognize the stories and where they, they may be messed up and where they did the right thing, and learn from that so that we don't repeat the same struggles and we can actually repeat the same covenantal blessings that they received because of their faithfulness. Which now brings us to the fifth seal being broken open in verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth. And if you look at, at the fifth seal and you look at the timeline of dispensations in the history of the, the gospel, this would be the Savior's dispensation. So, it, as you analyze verse 9 and 10, there under the altar are the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. The most amazing ultimate fulfillment of that description is Jesus Christ himself, whose blood was shed for and in behalf of all of us. And then after him, most of his apostles and many of the seven and others who went out. And now in John's time period, when he's writing this, you had all of the persecutions under the hand of Nero. And by the time the book of Revelation is probably being written, we have Domitian who has started to make wreak havoc among early Christians, and you have multiple martyrs, not just the leadership of the church, but multiple people who would be attending your local ward or branch of the church just regular people. are getting killed for the name of Christ, being persecuted for his name's sake. So this fifth seal seems to be really marked by this sacrifice of life, which you would think should have squelched the, the growth of that early Christian church, but it did the opposite because the Lord is, is teaching these people through his apostles like John, the power of blessed are they who are persecuted, are all those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And they're, they're actually having people join the ranks rather than flee from their ranks because of that persecution. But let's not leave it at the persecution because the fifth seal description does not end in verse 9 and 10. It actually goes on to verse 11. And white robes were given unto every one of them 
And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Keep in mind, if I'm receiving this letter in one of the seven churches from John, I'm reading this and I've, I'm probably related to people who have been persecuted to the point where they've, they've been killed or friends and associates. And he's saying, oh, and there are others who are also going to be killed. But I love the fact that he's describing that they're going to be given these robes, these pure robes of white, the symbol of, of the heavenly clothing that will be given them in exchange for them giving their life. Which I might add, Taylor, I think sometimes in, in our world today, because there are laws against this level of persecution, it's probably fairly easy for some of us to become complacent about religious freedom and about the, the ability we have to worship how, where, and what we may. I, th I think a, a good reminder for us is to pause and say, wait, even though my life, my physical life might not be on the line, I could probably do a better job of giving my life, not, not in death, but in life, giving my life for the kingdom of God. Which now brings us to the sixth seal. Now, I'm a very visual learner. I love to see the page just visually marked for me to be able to quickly make sense of it. So I have a number one there, a two, three, four, over the four horsemen of the apocalypse, these first four seals being open, and they're pretty quick. We're, we're just quickly marching through history. And now we get into the fifth seal, which is a little bit longer, and then you get into the sixth seal, which covers this, you know, two and a half columns plus a little bit over here. This is this is important, and he's he's giving us a lot more details. And then the seventh seal will open up in chapter eight, before we then get into the trumpets. So let's look at this sixth seal. Why? Because this one is more relevant to people living in the latter days. Uh, for those who are keeping track, if you read all of the uh, book of Revelation, the second coming of the Lord won't happen until we're partway into the seventh seal. So, all of these things we're reading about in the sixth seal are still in our time frame in the latter days. I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. So, again, are you going to interpret this literally, that there's a great earthquake, sun turns black, the moon turns blood, or are there symbolic ways that this can be fulfilled at different degrees, at different times, at different events moving forward in time. Notice verse uh, 14, the heavens departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The way I drive and read maps, that seems to be the case when I get lost, but I don't think this has been fully fulfilled yet. No, and it's fascinating because if you want to take uh, the literal lenses off for a minute and put on symbolic lenses, mountains are often referred to as either a sacred space to get to heaven, and that will be moved, or in other places, in, for instance, Isaiah, he, he refers to the lofty as the proud, the puffed up, the haughty, and they'll be moved. They won't always be able to stay. Every single mountain is going to be made low or brought down. And every island, that which is isolated, is also going to be moved. Uh, lots of ways to interpret this. And verse 15 says, the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man. Sounds like he just covered all of humanity there. Where did they go? They hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. So, if you take a literal lens approach to this and say, yeah, there's going to be worldwide upheavals, geologically speaking, with earthquakes, 
then it would destroy a lot of the infrastructure. And for safety and security and for some shelter, where would you go? You would go to the mountains to hide in the holes of the rocks, in the caves, in the dens. And isn't it fascinating that they're, they're going there, and what do they say? They said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It's at that point that people are recognizing, oh no, I haven't done what I needed to do, and the last thing I want to do is, is come into the presence of, of God. And so they're, they're in survival mode. And it's in that condition that then verse seven or chapter seven opens up. He saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the winds should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Again, you see the symbol of four, which is repeated again and again. And again, the symbol of four can mean the earth or the stability, or again, just the four angels, the four corners. And so an angel comes into that setting, and in verse three, he says, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And so then what gets sealed? He saw the number. There were 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. That's a lot. Again, what is that, numbers? You, you look at numbers. These are, these are very symbolic. 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. So if you square a number, you, you're adding emphasis to it. So here you get the final number of the set of three that is kind of the complete set of numbers, seven being perfect, complete, and whole, 10 being a totality, 12 being this, this full set, the, the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, 12 authority. Now you have a doubling of that authority, and then you make it superlative. You 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 make it to total and complete. One hundred and forty-four thousand is this beautiful number to represent this most authoritative, most perfectly uh, assembled group of missionaries in the history of the world. It's superlative. There is no better set of missionaries than these uh, one hundred and forty-four thousand high priests out of each of the tribes of Israel. And he lists those tribes in verse five through eight. You'll notice that there's a tribe missing. It's Dan that is not mentioned, and a lot of ink has been spilled over the years as to why Dan is missing. Um, keep in mind, Jacob had 12 sons, but Joseph had two and we're replacing Joseph with his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So it actually makes 13 tribes. So for whatever reason, and I'm not gonna speculate as to why, Dan is not in that list. And so it's this idea of 12,000 sealed from each tribe, and they're the ones that go forth to do this missionary work. And verse nine says, after this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number. That's an important thing. Right. No man could number them. The, the, as he's seeing this in vision, he's saying, I don't even know where to start in trying to describe how big this group of people is. Which is a number like this. It's the totality of anything that could exist. That's right. God will do his work and he will bring it to full completion. I used to worry like, what if I was 144,001? Oh, sorry, you missed the cutoff. The clicker. And that's what happens when we read literally. Sometimes we think, I hope in that limited invitation engagement, I can be one of those special ones that get here. It's like, have you chosen to follow Jesus Christ through repentance and faith and baptism? You're in. Because it is everybody who has chosen to be with God. So verse nine says that the, the rest of this is extremely significant to me. No man could number this great multitude, and notice where this multitude came from, of all nations. It wasn't just a certain select number of countries. These people are coming out of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues. There's that number four again for the earth, for, for fallen uh, mankind. And where are they? They stood before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, bringing us back to, to John, uh, John's description of the triumphal entry with the people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, as they wave those palm branches, this praise to God and a plea for salvation from God. And they cried with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Isn't that beautiful? Salvation to our God at the triumphal entry, it's pleading for salvation for them. But in this vision where they're in this celestial court with him, they're shouting the opposite, which is salvation to our God. And their focus is on him and unto the Lamb, both of them. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Uh, I love songs that, that refer to this in Amazing Grace. It talks, and when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, and then that song goes on to talk about how it, it won't ever get old. It will be as if we had just gotten there shouting these praises. And now one of the sweetest set of verses ever written in any book at any time that I know of. Um, if you're feeling down, if you're feeling discouraged, uh, lack of hope, this is a set of verses that it's powerful. So, one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, robes and whence came they? Who are these, and where did they come from? And John's response, I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, many of you are watching this and right now you're sitting there in pain. It might be physical pain. It might be spiritual pain. It might be men mental or emotional anguish over loved ones or life situation. There, there's great tribulation. What have you learned about the Lord Jesus Christ? What have you learned about yourself? What have you learned about God and about others? because you passed through that trial and it wasn't taken away. Look at the wording again. These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Oh, that symbolism is amazing because few things stain white linen quicker than blood. But the most powerful cleansing agent possible in all the universe happens to be blood, just not my blood or your blood. It happens to be the blood of the Lamb of God that cleanses and purifies in ways that no earthly cleaner or chemical could possibly cleanse and purify. And verse 15, therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Uh, did, did you catch the fact that it's day and night serving God in his temple and he's dwelling among them? And then this beautiful promise, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat, for the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So, to bring this um, into focus from a 30,000-foot overview, we, we were working our way through the seven seals. We got to the sixth seal and then after talking about the, the earthquakes and the, the mountains moving and people fleeing to the rocks, then you get the 144,000 high priests sealed to go out and, and gather them in, and then you got this, this conclusion in chapter 7 
which was a prophetic view forward in time. So, up till now, we've been looking into the past, now we're looking into the, the future, and then into the, the beautiful future of when God will dwell among us and we'll be with him in either a millennium or in the, the eternities where he's going to wipe away all tears from our eyes and there's going to be no more hunger, no more thirst, no more sick and afflicted, no more poor and needy because Christ is the one who is taking care of all those, those uh, things for us at that point. So, it's this little interlude. It's as if the Lord is giving John this respite in the midst of a pretty heavy, uh, deep, and, and a bit hard to take set of prophecies in this vision. He, he keeps interspersing these pockets or packets, rather, of hope and of the glorious future, lest we, we get overly discouraged. So, as we transition into trumpets, so just chapter six to eight, um, roughly speaking, are the seven seals. Chapters eight to 11 are the trumpets. And then you will see the vials actually show up next week in chapters 15 to 16. There's actually also seven, um, seven signs that you'll find in chapters 12 through 14. We'll just talk, talk about those briefly as well. So, let's jump into chapter 8 and see what happens when the trumpets are announced. So, when he had opened the seventh seal, so this is, this is the last seal being opened, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Keep in mind, when you go into the temple of uh, at the time of Christ, or at the time of Solomon, or the tabernacle at the time of Moses and Aaron, you would go into the holy place, and at the veil, right in front of the veil, is the altar of incense. And you would take the incense off that table of showbread and dump it onto the, those existing hot coals, and it would just smoke. And as that smoke rises in front of the veil, with the, the presence of God being in the Holy of Holies on the other side of the veil, you can see how, how closely associated the, the ancient Israelites and the first century Christians would have had this smoke being a symbol for their prayers ascending to heaven. And isn't it beautiful that it's at the veil where you go to ask, to make these petitions, to seek the Lord, to knock, that you knock at the veil. And to, to connect this back to Hebrews chapter 10 that we've talked about many times, and President Nelson has talked about, the veil being this beautiful symbol of the flesh of Christ. When I go to the veil, when you go to the veil in the temple of our God, it's a very literal yet symbolic way of coming unto Christ. And we make our petitions to God, our requests, we're asking things of God, and we do it through Christ or in the name of Jesus Christ to God, who symbolically is on the other side of that veil. So, it's beautiful seeing this symbol come full circle now in chapter 8, verse 3 with this incense and the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth, and there were voices and thunderings and lightnings, and an earthquake, and the seven, seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound." So, now we finished our first set of seven, now we get into our second set of seven with the trumpets. And again, you, you can do whatever you want with your scriptures. I love marking mine so it's just very, very easy to see. And again, you get rapid succession with the first four. And you're losing a third of the trees in the first trumpet. You're losing a third of the animals in the sea becoming blood. Are you recognizing some of the repeat themes from the Old Testament 
Pharaoh, Egypt with Moses and the 10 plagues. Again, it's a symbol that God is in charge. His presence is here. He's the one who acts and affects these mighty deeds. And then you get a third of the rivers. And then in the fourth trumpet, you get a third of the sun, moon, and stars being smitten. And then verse 13, and I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by the reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. This is one of only four places in scripture where you get the superlative or triple woe, the ultimate curse. That's, that's as woe as you can go. It doesn't get any woe than that, right? This is one of only four. The other places it's spelled W-O instead of W-O-E, like it's spelled here because of the, the Greek influence. Now you get chapter nine. So th that angel has just pronounced that superlative woe because of the three trumpets which are yet, yet to sound. Well, here we go. You get in chapter nine, the star that fell from heaven, uh, all the way down to verse 12. And then the sixth angel in verse 13 gives you the description of people who still refuse to repent even amidst all of this destruction and their world is crumbling around them and they still refuse to repent. It sounds like a variation on the same theme from the Book of Ether and the Book of Mormon, the smaller book, Mormon, inside of the larger Book of Mormon at the very end of that Nephite uh, socio-political civilization when they also, verse 20, the rest of men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Brothers and sisters, this is an important point. God loves us so much and the whole war in heaven was fought over agency and we won. We won that war. We've got our agency. Now here we find ourselves on the earth with lots of options. We're free to choose. And if we choose to use our agency to follow the devil's enticements and to follow the natural tendencies in us, that's our choice. God is not going to reach in and squeeze our heart and say, you will follow me. He, he lets us make our decision. It's an amazing thing to consider that God, who has all this power, allows you and me to still be independent agents. He, he's got cosmic power, but he allows me to make my own decisions. He'll entice, he'll invite, he'll encourage. He sends lots of consequences to perhaps help encourage us to use our agency, but he's never going to force that's our choice. And this is a this is a sad moment when these when the sixth trumpet sounds and people still, in the midst of all of that destruction, they still refuse to turn to him. Okay. When we move into chapter 10, look for the repeated pattern of seven. In verse three, we have an angel crying with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. Again, maybe symbolizing that God himself and the completeness of his arrival, that God's presence is near. We should expect that God is appearing. It's a great day for those who've repented. It's a terrible day for those who haven't. It's either mercy for those who've shown mercy or justice for those who deserve justice only and have been unwilling to receive the mercy of God. And this angel delivers to John uh, a book. Have you noticed how often this happens in the Old Testament and even in the Book of Mormon, this idea of when angels come to a prophet and commission that prophet or when the Lord himself comes, often, not always, but often, it, it involves a book, a book being delivered. And it's usually a book that is a book of woe, 
a book of repent or you're going to be destroyed. And look how he describes it here. Verse 9, I went unto the angel and said unto him, give me the little book. And he said unto me, take it and eat it up and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. Mm. So it tastes good, but oh, it leaves you with a, with a tummy ache when you're, when you're done because of the effect, which is amazing because here we're talking about a book given by God, so it's like scripture of this history of the world and the unfolding of the future elements of the world, but the same exact thing could be said for the things of this world. They might taste really sweet in your mouth, but they end up with long-term bitter consequences if we, if we consume them, if we allow them to be a part of us. So it's kind of this play on, on opposites here of what the Book of Mormon might teach or what this little book that John consumed, sweet in the mouth like honey, but bitter in the belly, and you can see that, that corollary in, in the world around us today. Then you get into chapter 11, which is a famous chapter about the uh, last days regarding the Jews in Jerusalem, this, this lead up in the Battle of Armageddon. You, you, you find that in verse 3, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. If you do the math for a thousand two hundred and sixty days, it's roughly three and a half years. So this three and a half year ministry, there are these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Great symbol. These are representatives of peace, of God's offer of an invitation into his light. But of course, what happens? People are not paying attention. They are rejecting. They're not changing their lives, even though they're given the time to repent. It reminds me in the Book of Mormon, there's a couple of prophets right before Jesus shows up. So a lot of chaos in Nephite society, and there's two men in particular who end up preaching for about three and a half years and similar things happen where they, we see famines in the society, but people repent. And eventually the people realize that if we trust God, he will fulfill his promises to us. And yet here, it seems like people want to live in their own reality in the sense of we don't want to be oriented by God and his expectations. We want to create our own world without God. And this just doesn't work. Yeah, these, these two prophets, they're going to have power, it says in verse 6, to shut the heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Almost like Moses did when he That's was trying right. to save the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. And Elijah to shut the heavens. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And then we find out that they're going to leave their bodies three days and a half, their dead bodies lying in the streets. They won't put them in graves. And then verse 11, after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered, uh, entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither. And they ascended up into heaven. And then there's a great earthquake, which closes the sixth angel's trumpet, which was very lengthy, lots of columns here, and now we open up the seventh trumpet. Verse 15, he sounded his, that angel, and the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Those of you who know Handel's Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the verse where, where that comes from. And look at verse 19, the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testimony, testament and there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. And now we pause. There's a bit of an interlude here because now you get chapter 12, 13, and 14, which are going to give us these uh, interesting elements describing this 
ultimate clash between what Satan is trying to do to overthrow what God has set up in his kingdom. If you look at chapter 12's heading, I'm just going to say from my own perspective, my own view, this is one of the finest chapter summaries as far as being instructive and teaching powerful uh, ideas that aren't perfectly described in the in the chapter itself. Listen to this. It, it reads like scripture all by itself standalone. John sees the imminent apostasy of the church. He also sees the war in heaven in the beginning when Satan was cast out. He sees the continuation of that war on earth. Hmm. That is one of the most instructive chapter summaries I've ever seen in all of scripture because John in the first century sees the imminent apostasy, then he sees into the distant past the, the war in heaven, and then he sees the continuation of that war on the earth. Including in our day. Including in our day. Panoptic. It's a view of all. You don't have to wonder what the war in heaven was like quite as much as you maybe thought. While we don't remember all the details and the veil is pretty thick, the continuation of the war that you started fighting there is now going on here. And you feel those tugs, you feel those wars, uh, uh, th those battles of ideas, of faith versus fear, of discipleship versus giving up and the, the wrestles that you and your loved ones have to face on a daily basis. We're fighting the war in heaven. It just happens to be now on the earth. It's a continuation of that war. I love the imagery. So we've all probably seen really spectacular and engaging action films that have lots of, uh, lots of amazing visual sequences. And we kind of have that here in chapter 12. Now, I don't know about you, but as a regular reader, sometimes I can be a little overwhelmed by the verbal imagery that is expressed. And we might just remind ourselves that the way the story is going is that God will win. And if you are finding yourself a little discouraged, if you don't understand everything in these verses, it's okay. In fact, it may not be the need to nail down every last word and its symbol, but just to step back and look at the chapter heading and realize, okay, I get it. I see where I am at in this plan of salvation. I'm living in these days. There's still a war going on, and it's my choice which side to fight, fight for. Excellent. Now, as we jump into chapter 12, it, for those of you who, who want to dive a little bit deeper, it would be worth your time to go back to the Joseph Smith translation back in the, the ending part of your Bible, right before the maps, and read the, the Revelation 12, 1 through 17 sequence, because he, he changes some of the order of the verses here, and, it, and it's instructive mm -hmm. how he does that. For the sake of time, we're going to fly through the sequence here in the, the King James Version. Look at verse 1. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, Noticed often that the woman could be taken literally as somebody like Mother Eve or Mother of Christ, Mary, but it could also be a symbolic representation of the church or of all of us as the bride. Look at what the woman has. She has a crown of 12 stars, and she being with child cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered, and there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Keep in mind, the crowns, the horns, royalty, horns represent power. So it's this dragon who's coming in, he's got seven, uh, seven heads, and if you're living in the first century, in Eastern, or sorry, in Western Turkey, and you're getting this, this revelation in a circular letter form in one of your churches, you hear about a dragon, you hear about these seven heads, most of you are probably going to think of Rome because Rome is built on seven hills. You, you can Google this and, and see a, an image of the seven hills wherein Rome is built, and it's where they would see 
Rome as the embodiment of this dragon who is fighting against the church, fighting against the saints of God. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and it cast them to the earth. And then the dragon goes and stands in front of the woman, woman ready to be delivered, waiting to devour her child as soon as she should deliver it. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So you get this ascension to, to save him ultimately from what the dragon wanted to do. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared that should be, uh, where they should feed her a thousand two hundred and three score days. Joseph Smith changed that to years. One thousand two hundred and sixty years. And you think about the church, the, this woman symbol, being out in a wilderness, safely waiting for twelve hundred years before she can slowly start coming back out of that wilderness again. Uh, and then you get the allusion to the war in heaven, verse 7, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. Can I just suggest to you that you personalize verse 7? I, I could be wrong, but I don't think that it's a stretch to assume that you could circle and his angels after the word or after the name Michael and put in the margin, me too. Mm -hmm. you're included in that. I, I don't believe that you were neutral. I believe you were actively working with the Lord under the direction of Michael, the archangel. And verse 8 says, and they prevailed not. The angels of the devil, the dragon, prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. So they were cast out, and his angels were cast out with him down to the earth. And so verse 10 talks about how in a loud voice, they, they hear, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Did you catch that? One of the titles or one of the attributes of Satan is the great accuser, the great finger pointer, the guy who's going around pointing out what everybody did wrong, and he's talking to God about what everybody did wrong, trying to get everybody in trouble. Um, and now he's cast down to the earth. And look at this, the uh, solution here, verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. That verse is the power we used to overcome the devil and his angels in the pre-mortal realm. Well, we're fighting the same battle. It's just a different battleground. It's just a different location. But we're fighting against the same people. We're fighting against the same ideas. It's everything he's trying to do to tear down our agency and to tear down the plan of God and to overthrow the, the triumph of the Savior's infinite atonement. And yet again, we need the blood of the Lamb to overcome. Same battle, same sides, same victors, and same process for winning. Up in heaven or down here? And the question is, will we continue to choose the Lord's side? Now, I would suggest that if you are spending time with God, the answer is yes. And I think we can just kind of lower the temperature a bit that uh, yes, we want to be anxiously engaged in a good cause, but we should not feel like there's some crisis that, man, am I really on the Lord's side? The answer is if you love the Lord and want to be on his side, you've already chosen yes. Which, as you're moving forward in life in this, in this battle that you're waging every day against the forces of darkness, there are simple things we could do to make minor improvements to turn a little bit more to the Lord, just a little bit more today than you did yesterday, uh, and, and to encourage others. You could replace a little bit of time that you spend perhaps scrolling through news feeds or social media, and instead use that very same phone to listen to a general conference talk, or to read an inspiring book, or to contact somebody and call them or text them and send them some encouragement. The very same 
instrument that could be used to by the by the forces of darkness to drag us down those very same instruments could be used as reflector uh, mirrors to reflect the light of God's goodness and love not only into our own souls but into other people's lives it's we're not we're not victims in this battle we have agency we fought for that and won that part of the war now we're fighting for the the souls of of everybody around us to the best of our ability here on this battlefield look at verse 12 therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them because satan was cast out so now you can rejoice up in heaven woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea for the devil is come down unto you having great wrath so this is john who's living on this earth out on an island of the sea and he's seeing this vision and the angel is saying woe to you inhabitants of the earth because the devil has this great wrath why because he knoweth that he hath but a short time a very encouraging verse and yet all of the promises from our prophets seers and revelators is we have eternal destiny filled with light and power and freedom to act and and love our future is bright as long as we stay connected with the source of that love and light and power which is jesus christ when the dragon saw that he was cast down to the earth he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child so don't be shocked when the world doesn't stand up and applaud you for doing good things it it's it's going to happen in a fallen world that you're going to get mocked and at times abused and at times bad things are going to happen when you do good things verse 17 ends this chapter by saying the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of god and have the testimony of jesus christ but remember that group back in chapter 7 who came through great tribulation and found great rest and peace and love in the presence of god as he wiped away all tears from their eyes that's that's john's petition to us to keep moving forward through these these persecutions so now we get into chapter 13 which is john showing you a vision of what the devil is doing while the lamb and the followers of the lamb and his church are doing what they can to build up the kingdom chapter 13 is all about these earthly kingdoms that are following the devil and they're binding people down and doing blasphemies and killing killing people and living lives of iniquity that's all in chapter 13. so then you end chapter 13 in this last verse where he says here is wisdom let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is six hundred three score and six is this the right number <laughs> that would be a superlative perfection completion wholeness six consistently falls short of six is the kind of a uh, uh, symbolically not a great number because it approximates but falls short of seven and it acts as if it's complete but it's not so it would be like bad 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 it's a superlative of not ever arriving at completion it's actually a complete imposter it tries to get people to focus here versus being fully complete which is going to be focused on christ so if you get into gematria this this using numbers associated with the the letters in your name spelled out in hebrew and each letter has a, a number value you add those up and everybody's name has a, a one number value to the saints receiving this book this revelation of john in the first century i think they would have all recognized the number 666 as being the the name equivalent of nero because if you say caesar nero kaiser nero 
you're going to add up all those numbers and it comes up with 666. So they see him as this beast that is being uh, empowered by the dragon, by the devil himself, to do this work of destruction among the, the woman and her children who are striving to keep the commandments. So that's first century. But quite frankly, Nero isn't affecting my life. He's not, in, not, not a part of your life. So there are other symbolic ways that you could analyze in your life. What are those influences that are battling against my spiritual progression on the covenant path? Keeping you from being full and complete with God that want you to be stopped or damned at just about being there, but not. Yeah. Now, there's a Greek manuscript tradition that sometimes uses the word 669, and it's a variant reading of Nero's name as Neron. And so, you just have to realize, if you ever see the number 666 anywhere, you don't have to lose your mind over this. It's, it's just a symbol. In fact, there in the United States, there was a highway called Highway 666, and there was a governor who was so bothered by this, he actually changed the number. Eh, maybe that was a fine thing to do, but look, the number itself has no inherent meaning. If you find it in your phone number or your address somewhere, it means nothing about whether you're on God's path or not. But in the time of John, it was as a clear symbol that someone like Nero, who's standing in the way of God's people fully progressing, you want to avoid those kinds of influences and people in your life. You want to be with God all the way. Now, on a happier note, we turn to chapter 14. And in this one, it opens by saying, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. So, watch for the, the um, characteristics of the people who are with the Lamb of God. Number one, they have the Father's name written in their foreheads. Number two, they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. Number three, they were redeemed from the earth. The ending of verse three. Now, beginning of verse four is number four. These are they which were not defiled with women. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. Verse six, or sorry, verse five is number six. In their mouth was found no guile, for they were without fault before the throne of God. Without fault, you and I can't do that. If you're standing before the throne of God without fault, then I instantly know who you're standing beside. I know who you're standing with, because you can't stand there without fault on your own. You can't get to the 777, superlative, perfect, complete, and whole, lacking nothing, finished state on your own. Only the Savior can do that as you use your agency to connect with him and allow his power to work through you and to redeem you through all of these, these aspects here. I look at these qualities and I think a bit about Temple Recommend interview questions, and you see some of the same themes here. Uh, are you seeking to live a law of chastity? Do you believe in God the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ? Are you seeking to be honest in all your doings and not to beguile people with the way you act or speak? So the things that you hear in a Temple Recommend interview might be related to the qualities we see here of those who find themselves in the presence of God, standing on Mount Zion. In fact, isn't being in a temple standing on Mount Zion, isn't that? That's where you become a savior on Mount Zion, hmm. doing things for others that they can't do for themselves. And we become a little bit more like him every time we go. President Nelson has, has emphasized our need to spend more time in the temple. Every time you go, you have this opportunity to become more like the Savior, and it's powerful. Now, you go to verse 6. I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. It makes me think about Moroni. We have had Moroni on temples. It was the Nauvoo Temple where Moroni was actually placed in a horizontal level, flying through the heavens with his trumpet and bringing forth the Book of Mormon. This verse here, helps us think about the restoration was founded on the revelation that comes from the Book of Mormon, 
which Moroni delivered to Joseph Smith. Really, really powerful. powerful. One of my favorite chapters. So you, you again notice how the Lord gives this vision to John, and every once in a while, when it starts to feel a little heavy, he'll throw in these, these incredible hope-filled segments. One of them comes here in verse 12 and 13. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. For those of you who have lost a loved one recently or, or even in the distant past, and it, it hurts, it's painful. Uh, I, I suppose it wouldn't hurt so badly if you didn't love so much. Um, what comes in love generally has to leave in pain. It's the words of a, of a song that I've heard. Mm-hmm. And here's this idea, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. That's a, that's a beautiful promise to these first century saints as well as to the 21st century saints, us who maybe were facing different persecutions than Nero and and Domitian are inflicting on that group, but it's a beautiful promise that we can uh, rest assured that our loved ones who have passed on are resting from their labors and their works to follow them. So to finish this, uh, these chapters this week, let's go back one more time to chapter seven and end here. These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat, for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. I just marvel at God's goodness at his grace, at his love, how we love the Lord for that that everlasting kindness that he offers to us and all these promises that we don't have to be victims of these difficult circumstances that have been foreseen by the prophets, both ancient and modern. May the Lord bless us to always stay firmly connected to Christ in this covenant and in his church. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.